most of the way that employees and companies and employees and managers relate to each other in the modern world is based on a total lie which we all agree to go along with for whatever crazy reason is that when we join this company, we will loyally stay with this company until we retire, which may have been true once upon a time, but is completely false now. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way, to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoyed the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello. Today, I'm chatting with and learning from Chris Yeh. Chris went to Stanford, out of that into hedge funds, and from there into CEO, CMO, tech businesses, and now is a venture capitalist investing in fast growth startups. Along the way, he's written a couple of books with Reid Hoffman, the founder of LinkedIn. The first one is Alliance. We talk about that. We talk about the particular concept in Alliance of Tour of Duty having grown-up conversations about why you're in this company instead of lying to each other as employers and employees that this is your one and only job for life. And then we move on to his current business. Well, really, we sort of jump to the end and then we come back to the beginning because he wrote another book called Blitzscaling, which is having done some research into what had made some companies grow exponentially he and Reed put together Blitzscaling, which is sort of unpicking that. What did those businesses have to do? How did they reach the scale that they had reached? And now as a venture capitalist with Blitzscaling Ventures, he's built an algorithm, which is based on the research in the book. And since 2019, he and his team have been scoring companies that around the world come to market looking for money. And in fact, on his podcast, they discuss the most interesting ones that they've seen that month. So we talk about the algorithm when we talk about some of the companies that he's seen along the way. What about Uber? What about WeWork? Some businesses that he's quite bullish about, some businesses that he's bearish on. And towards the end, when we get to book recommendations, he actually gives us the meaning of life in 60 seconds. Fantastic conversation. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. Dom, thank you so much for having me. This is Chris Yeh. For all you listeners out there, I am an author of books like Blitzscaling and The Alliance. I'm a venture capitalist with Blitzscaling Ventures. I'm an educator with the Blitzscaling Academy and the work I do with various universities. And I am also an avid fan of basketball and the television show Ted Lasso. Okay, right. That's brilliant. Thank you. Um, and how did you come 
to write these business books? What was it that got you to a position where you thought, this is a book I need to write? So I always was interested in being a writer from a very young age. You know, as soon as I learned to read and began reading, uh, I was a notable bookworm, as they say. I set various records for most books read in these various March of Times fundraisers that school children in America do. And, you know, throughout my primary and secondary education, I would say that you know, I would average sometimes more than a book a day because I could get my schoolwork done pretty quickly and that left me plenty of time to read. So from a young age, I always wanted to be a writer. But being somebody who believes in the power of research and understanding, one of the things I did as I got older into my teens, even before I went to college, was to start reading about what it was like to be a writer and how the profession worked and whether or not it was a good one. And I quickly concluded that any profession where you spend most of your time writing query letters, hoping that someone says yes to get paid one or two cents per word, that was not necessarily appealing to me. <laughs> And let's face it, most people who are writers go into writing. They've never bothered to consider the economics. They just figure it'll work out. Or maybe they have rich parents. I don't know. But I was like, I want to understand this. And so I had magazines like Writers and Digest and Poets and Writers. And I could read about the business of writing as well as how you wrote. And I'm like, well, it's clear that this is pretty bad business to be in. I mean, there are a few notable exceptions, right? There are the J.K. Rowlings of the world or the Stephen Kings of the world. But most people who go into writing they better not be going into it for the money because they're going to be disappointed. So it was something I wanted. Do you think that's the same for any profession? You know, like, you know, you, somebody says, I'm going to become a lawyer. Okay. Not that many of them end up at the top of the profession, or I'm going to be a doctor. Most of them end up being a general practitioner. Well, there's a big difference between it's difficult to get to the top because it is difficult to be the best at anything. And you know, if you are a mediocre lawyer and you charge people $500 an hour, or if you're a mediocre doctor and you work for a hospital that pays you hundreds of thousand dollars a year, that's better than being a mediocre writer who's never been published and lives in their parents' basement. Yes, yes, indeed. So I, it was the case that, you know, I knew I loved the language, the great, the great and wonderful English language. I knew I loved reading and writing. And so I did study writing in college. I have a English degree in, with a focus on creative writing from Stanford University. But I also have a degree in product design engineering because I was also very fond of the sciences and technology and things like that. And I said, well, you know, this seems like it's probably a little bit easier way to make a living. And hopefully somewhere along the line, the adventures of life will present me with the opportunity to be a writer. And many years later, it did. So I had again, dreamed of being a writer since I was a child. And my first book, The Alliance, was not published until I was 39 years old and well into my professional career. But it all worked out pretty well because the topic of The Alliance, people management, was something I knew from actually having been in the business world for uh, nearly two decades and, and managing various teams and people and things like that and being a student of management. I do have a degree from Harvard Business School and MBA as well. And so it worked out pretty well. And then I finally got my chance to write a book and I seized it because at that point in time, it was a, a great opportunity. I had already had some good successes in my career and it was less about the financial side and more about what kind of legacy am I going to lead and am I going to be able to share my ideas with the world. Absolutely fantastic. When, who, were you, who would you work with or for up until that point where you published The Alliance? 
So I work for a number of pretty interesting organizations. I started right after college working for D.E. Shaw and Company, which is a very secretive, very successful hedge fund that is probably best known as the company that Jeff Bezos worked for before he started Amazon. And I do follow up by telling people that uh, he left the company 18 months before I joined. So I never had any personal contact with Jeff, have never actually, I think, even been in the same room as him. Although, you know, who knows, maybe there'll be an opportunity to do so. I don't particularly want to go up into space, though. So I definitely want to keep it a meeting on the ground. And after D.E. Shaw, I, I went into entrepreneurship. I started a number of different companies as a founder or a member of the founding team or came in as an executive. My primary role either was either as CEO or head of marketing or chief marketing officer for a variety of different companies. And then after that, I gradually transitioned into being more of a writer. But along the way, I had a chance to do things like, for example, uh, I was the first investor in and then helped the company raise as their interim CEO the first million dollars in a company called Ustream, which was a live video pioneer we sold to IBM for $160 million in 2016. And I also was an advisor to usertesting.com, a company that just went public last year. So had a chance to be a part of this amazing startup ecosystem here in Silicon Valley, but also, again, got the chance to become a part of the world of ideas, which is something I enjoy a lot as well. Fantastic. And so what are some of the key things in the alliance? I mean, one of the things that we were talking about before we came on air was was tour of duty, but what other nuggets are in there that people, if they haven't read the book, should pick up and jump on top of? Well, the core insight of the Alliance is that most of the way that employees and companies and employees and managers relate to each other in the modern world is based on a total lie which we all agree to go along with for whatever crazy reason, is that when we join this company, we will loyally stay with this company until we retire, which may have been true once upon a time, but is completely false now. And yet everyone feels like they have to go through this crazy kabuki theater of pretending it's true. And it leads to all sorts of problems. And from both sides, not only am I joining your company for life, but I'm hiring you for life too. That's right. It's nuts. I mean, the manager is not going to be there in 10 years. The employee is not going to be there in 10 years. And yet everyone pretends that somehow this is a permanent state of affairs. And we describe it as, you know, probably the reason this happened is because companies have drawn on this metaphor of being like a family. And the thing about family is, yeah, of course, you care about each other, you support each other, you love each other. But the other thing about families is that you are legally bound together until you die. And that is not what happens with companies, right? And I always tell people, listen, the thing about families, you can't fire your children. I don't care if my child is not performing up to snuff. I could put him on a performance improvement plan, but I cannot replace him with Sanjay from Bangalore. <laughs> I said that to a client recently and he went, I fired my sister. I said, yeah, from the company, but she's still your sister. That's right. It's funny, isn't it? It's just, um, I, I hear all the time, I'm really disappointed so-and-so's left. Why didn't they tell me they were thinking of leaving? Why didn't they tell me they were disappointed? It's like, because you haven't created any framework where grown-up conversations can take place. Absolutely. And that's the core of the book. You referenced the concept of the tour of duty, which we borrowed from the military. And the idea is, listen, let's be adults about this. Let's admit that almost all employment relationships are not going to be for the rest of the person's career, that people are going to work for multiple companies. But let's make sure that the time they do spend at a company is good for them and good for the company. And if they do that, 
then they can have more of, as we describe it in the book, an alliance, something that persists after the employment relationship ends, where you can continue to get value out of your former employees as well. But the core to that is the tour of duty, to be able to carefully define what is the mission that the employee is embarking on, what constitutes success in that mission, how does that mission help the company, and how does that mission help accelerate the employee's career. And if you do that, then it's very easy to know where you stand and to have that adult conversation, especially as the mission is drawing to close, to say, can we figure out a good additional tour of duty for you here at this company that is going to be better than any tour of duty that you have out there in the real world? And if you decide that you do need to leave, if we agree, well, you know what, you have a better opportunity elsewhere, the answer is let's have a great relationship with that former employee because do you know what's responsible for the brand of a company as an employer? It's the current employees and the former employees. And like a university, university is very proud of its alumni. University doesn't say, oh, that rat bastard, he graduated and left us. No, they're like, <laughs> this alum demonstrates all the great things about being a graduate of this school. Yeah. And it's, well, or somebody like McKinsey who do a good job of, I mean, not just McKinsey, but I was just thinking, you know, that's sort of inherent in their model. And a number of other organizations certainly see that. I see Microsoft do that as well in some of the some of their you know people moving on from their organization into their partners it sort of binds those organizations together you know they've got a common vocabulary a common language absolutely and obviously it's a little easier for the management consultancies because they can see direct revenue out of placing their alumni at different companies but for the rest of us absolutely just think about the fact that you know, you just don't know what's going to happen in your career. You just don't know what's going to happen in the industry. Having connections out there are going to be useful. And if you don't proactively try to maintain a relationship with your alumni, you're just throwing this resource away. Well, they know what it's like to work in your organization. And so referring people in at whatever level can be really, really helpful. It's interesting, though. I, I was thinking about a company down in Australia, Macquarie Telecom Group, who I've done quite a bit of work with. And they take it to the extent where they hire people in on a fixed-term contract. So, you know, much more like doing a university degree. In fact, what they do is they hire people out of college year two, and they say, finish your third year part-time whilst working for us part-time as well. Here's a two-year contract. At the end of that, both parties can, you know, or there's another two-year contract. And so that clearly sets things up from the beginning. Absolutely. And that's the thing, right? This flexibility is something that benefits everyone. And the honesty and openness also benefits everyone. It benefits the employee because they don't have to lie, but they are also able to say, here's what I'm looking to do. And the company is not mystified when somebody says, I'm giving my notice because they know all along what the person is actually trying to accomplish. They're not trying to hide their ambition to someday run their own company or to switch industries or, or what have you. Instead, we can have a relationship and have a conversation like adults and try to figure out the best way to actually both get what we want. And so nice to be able to plan. You know, it's like you just know what your expected turnover is going to be and you can put a plan in to fill those holes rather than two or three people resign the same day and, you know, leave everybody in the lurch. Absolutely. And as we discussed before we started recording, it's something where as authors, we knew it was ahead of its time, but we figured that people would eventually catch up with us and it's happening, but very slowly. It's one of these ideas where you know, I think it just goes against people's ingrained instincts from decades of being in the work world. But 
I look at it and I say, this is a huge potential opportunity for you to have a strategic advantage over the competition, over everyone else by having the best talent. I mean, it's, it's interesting. Personally, years ago, I was working in Australia and I was offered a promotion. And I said, um, you know what? I'm not going to take the promotion because I haven't yet decided how long I'm staying. And I could take it and keep you in the dark, but I don't think I should. They got rid of me the next day. <laughs> and again, what did they do? They incentivized people to lie and conceal their own things. Basically, what they were saying is actually, we're going to put, create a set of incentives where next time, if anyone's in that same situation, they're just going to accept the promotion and then leave us in the lurch later on. And that's what we prefer. I have some sympathy for for people who are guarded having been in that position myself, but I'd much rather have the adult conversation. It needs to be something that the company and the manager really initiate, right? If you think about the power imbalance, the company and the manager, under most circumstances, have more power. Obviously, there are different examples, you know, phenomenal athletes who are so talented they can work wherever they want. But in most cases, there's a power imbalance, and it's up to the manager and the company to say, listen, we don't expect you to be here forever. And we expect that someday you're going to do great things somewhere else. And that will be actually be good for us because people will think this is a great place to have worked. And let's figure out a way to make sure that your time with us is as productive as possible. We'd like it to be a long time, but let's just make sure it's productive. Do you know what? I was listening to the latest episode of your podcast with Whitney Johnson. Yes. And she's, and she's got a great example where she talks to her boss and her boss says, she talks about going for an internal promotion and her boss goes, I like you just where you are. And it's like, okay, so she exited. But I, I was talking to a, a CEO today of a large UK tech firm who we're working with. And we were talking about the silos in his business. And one of the things that that shows up is, at the minute, they have no internal promotion transparency. And the managers like it like that, or at least the silos like it like that, because it will give them a headache if somebody moves from their part of the organization to another one. Some of these people are leaving their business who would be quite happy to take an internal promotion and transfer and build that sort of neural network across their business. And instead, there's this sort of siloed mentality. Absolutely. And, you know, it's no surprise why it exists. I've spoken with many chief human resources officers or with the various executive teams of companies. And they'll always say, oh, we, you know, we really want our managers to, to be better at developing people. We really want to develop our people. I'm like, hmm, that sounds reasonable, right? It's a great idea. Tell me, what kind of incentives do you have in the compensation plan to reward managers who develop great people? Well, none. I'm like, ah, oh, I see. So, you know, if a manager develops a great person and they then export that person to somewhere else in the organization, they receive zero benefit or reward. But if they selfishly hide that person from everyone else and keep them around to use their talents to make their own numbers, then they get rewarded. So what about this incentive structure makes you think that there's any reason for your managers to develop your people? <laughs> it's, it's, just, it's just mad. But the thing is that I think, I think what happens is it just, it is what it is. And it's only when you take, when an outsider forces people to take that step back and say, just look at this picture a little differently. Why are you surprised? It's not right. Look, let's uh, move on from that. Hopefully people listening to this will think twice now and go, ah, maybe there's something to that. And we can, we can persuade a few more other people to bring tour of duty into their vocabulary and their businesses. 
but you went on to write uh, another book, Blitzscale Adventures, and you use the algorithm that you write about in the book to every month review people who are trying to raise money. So we'll, I think, get to that at the end. What were you trying to capture in, in this book? So the reason that Reed Hoffman, who is my co-author, and I wrote this book is because we looked around, this was in the year 2015 when we began writing this book, we looked around and saw that the world was changing very rapidly. There were all these unicorns, this was a brand new term at the point, highly valued privately held companies. And meanwhile, there was also a changing of the guard in terms of the most valuable companies as companies like Google and Facebook and Apple took over and became the most valuable companies in the world. And we looked at this and said, you know, people are always asking us, what's the secret of Silicon Valley? And they look around and they fasten on things like foosball tables and the like, and that's all garbage. It's absurd. They don't really understand what's going on. And why don't we write a book that really looks at what has powered the rise of these companies and what they do differently? And so we did this. We taught a class at Stanford. We were able to bring in all sorts of interesting guests like Brian Chesky, the founder of Airbnb, Reed Hastings, the founder of Netflix, and and so many others to talk about what they had done. Diane Green, founder of VMware. And then what we did is we wrote this book on that basis. And our conclusion was the reason why these technology companies were becoming so valuable so quickly and becoming so powerful overall is because technology and the networked world we live in today lends itself towards winner-take-most markets. This concerns some people, including various figures in government when it comes to the, the talk of monopoly and things like that. But the fact remains that there is benefit to the consumer of companies that really win a winner take most market, right? The fact that everyone is on LinkedIn for their profession is useful both to those users and to their potential employers and everyone else. And so what we said is, okay, if the goal is to win one of these winner take most markets, then how do you do that? And the answer is by being the first one to reach critical scale. And that's because when you reach critical scale, various things like network effects kick in that cause you to become that enduring market leader, that one big winner that brings more value to the world and also, by the way, tends to become very valuable. And so we said that's what blitzscaling is. We made up the word because it's very useful to make up your own word. You can always tell when people are talking about you. And blitzscaling refers to prioritizing speed over efficiency, but it's for the sake of winning a winner-take-most market. And so when you say efficiency, do you mean, is that profitability? It could be any of the above. It could be financial efficiency. It could be personnel efficiency. I mean, everything ultimately is boils down to some form of resource efficiency. If we talk about efficiency, we're talking about resources. Money is the one that is uh, highest on people's minds, but the people also matter as well, as well as other things. So what are the factors that help you understand whether this is a winner-takes-all marketplace? Yeah, so there are a couple of important factors that need to be in place. And some of these factors are important because they represent a company being a good business. So for example, uh, in order for a company to be successful, it needs to have a a good sense of product market fit. You've heard this term from the lean startup and other things like that. It basically just means the product actually works and people keep using it over time. It's very fancy, but product market fit it's the established term. Uh, Eric Reese is a friend of ours, so absolutely. But when it comes to product market fit, you know, companies need the ability to have it. 
But just having it doesn't mean that you're going to be a successful winner in a winner-take-most market because you can have product market fit in a market that's definitely not a winner-take-most market. Like if you have a, a restaurant and you happen to have a great cuisine that people like, that's great, but you're not going to build into a $100 trillion company. However, you need to have it. And then there's other things like you need to have a large market and high gross margins because otherwise, how are you going to be a valuable company? You have to actually make profits. You need the ability to scale the organization and scale the operations. Otherwise, you can't actually benefit from growth. So those are all necessary. But if you think about it, they're true of every great business. There's no such thing as a $100 billion company which doesn't have those things. There's no like, oh, here's a $100 billion company. Nobody actually likes their products. Nobody uses them. <laughs> Here's a $100 billion company. It's in a tiny market and no margins. Here's a $100 billion company. It's a shambles. The factory's on fire, right? That's not the way it works. But the things that set aside the blitzscaling companies from just a regular good company are the winner-take-most market dynamic, which is usually driven by network effects and the ability to have distribution, to be able to grow faster than the competition. Now, the network effects and winner-take-most market dynamic are primary, right? That's telling you, is this a market where this can happen? And network effects, by the way, I always give the brief definition because people often confuse network effects and virality. Both are important, but they're different. Network effect means that as the number of users or customers grows, that the value of the product to each individual user or customer, including the previous customers who've already signed up, is also increasing. And that's important because A, it means that the value generated by the company increases exponentially. You have increasing value per user, and increasing number of users, often explosively, and then therefore you have an incredibly huge growth in value that outstrips even the user growth. And that creates those enormously valuable companies very quickly. The other element of it is as the network value grows, eventually the network value is so high that competitors just cannot catch up, right? Somebody can come in, clone your product exactly, but nobody's going to use it if there's strong network effects. Somebody could clone Facebook exactly, throw it out there, and who the heck would use it? Makes no sense. Well, I often wonder who the first person to buy a telephone was. It's a stretch, isn't it, to go, who are you, who, I've, I've bought this phone. What can you do with it, darling? Well, nothing at the moment, but it'll be valuable one day. And there is a whole pattern of adoption for these technologies, right? And no surprise, most often new technologies get adopted by the financial sector because they're looking for just about any opportunity to have gain. So, for example, we think about the telegraph, right? Instant communications. Samuel Finley briefs Morse in the United States, invents the telegraph and Morse code, and this becomes a huge thing, obviously hugely valuable around the world. Well, what is it that happens? Well, the Rothschilds string their own telegraph lines. It's not like they wait for someone to build the telegraphs. They string their own telegraph lines so that they can trade on information that's unavailable to everyone else. And that's something where, you know, it may not make sense for you or I to send a single telegraph message to spend the equivalent of billions of dollars doing it. But if you're going to be able to make multiple billions of dollars trading on that information, then it becomes worthwhile. Same thing for the internet, same thing for fax machines, right, being used for deal-making purposes. So it's possible, right? But there, so you, you have to figure out a way to make the microcosm, the small number of users use it, but then eventually cross the chasm, as Jeffrey Moore said, to the mainstream. Yeah. When you look at some of the organizations that have appeared since you wrote Blitzscaling. Who who are your who were the who are the people you wish you'd that had been around already when you were writing the book? So there are some incredible examples 
uh, I think that the ones that spring to mind immediately. So around the time we started writing the book, there was a company founded in China called Pinduoduo, which was the fastest growing company in history by revenues. It overtook and, and surpassed various companies like Groupon and Google and all these other companies in terms of its incredible revenue growth. And what it is, is a group buying company, which is highly viral because the more people you get into your group, the more people, the lower the prices get. And in China, it's very e-commerce penetrated. So this company grew from zero to a hundred billion dollars in revenues in less than five years. I mean, that's just astonishing. And the company was worth $250 billion before the Chinese government cracked down on all internet companies in China. Even now, it's still worth about $50 billion, which again, uh, this, is the, this is the sad thing. If, if you're a founder, you should be happy that your company's worth $50 billion. But if you knew it had been worth $250 billion before, you still got a sting. Yeah, that's fab, isn't it? But what, um, you know, there is Uber. Do you think it'll make money? I mean, not from the taxis, but from the delivery side? So that is one of the fascinating things. Uh, I think Uber is a great example of value creation through blitzscaling, but where the long-term future is a little murky. I mean, this goes all the way back to, you know, in the early 2010s. And the end game of Uber is obviously self-driving vehicles. But what Uber ended up being is they ended up being cut off from self-driving vehicles because of a variety of decisions that were made by the then CEO, Travis Kalanick, hiring people who may have, according to the courts, taken some information they didn't, uh, they didn't have uh, the legal right to as they left their employers. And so I look at that and I say, look, Uber's self-driving operations and, and initiatives are now defunct and they're not in that business. Eventually whether it's Google or Tesla or Apple or somebody or Cruise, they're going to crack that. And ironically enough, one of Uber's biggest advantages is its driver network. And once the driver network is no longer relevant, it's not clear what the value is going to be. Because again, you and I, we're Uber users. I'm sure you have Uber on your phone. I sure have Uber on my phone. But I have Lyft on my phone as well. I don't really care which one I use. And that's the bottom line. So it's very easy. Let's say, I mean, my long-term prediction for ride hailing has been that there will be self-driving vehicles and that Amazon will bundle it as a benefit of Prime. And it'll just be free. <laughs> Unlimited use of self-driving vehicles. As long as you log in with your Amazon account. And by the way, as you're going along, Amazon will probably sell you things as you're in your car. Yes, indeed. Well, where were you on WeWork? Did you look at that and go, there is no network effect here? Were you, this, you with, with yes. Prof Galloway? Yes. So uh, there is actually a blog post that I put up way back, right when their S1 first came out that said, this is a terrible idea. Now, <laughs> before I saw their S1... The guys at SoftBank don't read your... Don't read your blog post then, obviously. You know, or by then it's too late. You're already pot committed. You just have to try to ride it out and get as much as you can. Uh, so when I saw the S1, I was horrified. Now, before the S1, I had defended the concept of WeWork to many people, various friends of mine. This is a scam. This is a real estate company. I'm like, yes, that's all true. It is a real estate company. It's not a technology company. The fact that they're calling themselves a technology company is BS. But what at, at their heart, what they're able to do is they're able to somehow convince people to accept half as many square feet per person, right? That's the whole magic behind WeWork. It's not flexibility, it's not anything, it's that you can cram more people into a given space. 
And the idea would being that you can charge companies 50% more per square foot, but they view it as a 25% discount because their rent's going down 25%. Because of the shared common space. Because the, the, the shared space. You make the shared common space good enough that people don't notice. Exactly. And if you they actually did that, that would be a great business. Not a blitz scalable business, but a great business. However, when their S1 came out, it was apparent that was not actually their business because the amount of rent they got per square foot in comparison to their main publicly traded competitor, which is uh, previously known as Saris Regis. Now I can't remember its exact name, but it is you know old school shared office space. And you would expect WeWork with their shiny new offices, much greater, uh, much greater amenities and everything else to be making more money per square foot. They were making the same amount. And what's even worse is you could say, well, maybe they're just coming up to capacity. And the answer was, no, that's not true either. They're at 80% capacity. So they can't really even add too many more users per square foot. I'm like, okay, so this thing is a whole disaster. That's all it is. It's a disaster because they are uh, seemingly unable to generate more revenues per square foot, yet their expenses are 100% higher than their competition. And they can't actually add more users per square foot because they're already 80% capacity. So this is duped. Very good. And what else, when you look around at the moment, are there things where you feel that you're equally swimming against the tide? Are there things that you're a contrarian on that seem to be very popular and other things that you're bullish about that the rest of the world thinks are crap? Absolutely. And, and hopefully not too many people get angry about some of the things I'm about to say, because there are a lot of people who've invested a lot of money in some of these things. So one of the areas that I am really, really concerned about right now is a specific area within Web3 called play to earn games. Now, the concept behind a play to earn game is relatively simple. It's a video game. But as you're playing the video game, you can earn virtual goods in the form of NFTs that are the equivalent of actually having money. You're earning these tokens and you can convert these tokens to real life money. And there's a game called Axie Infinity, which is very famous. It's growing like crazy. It's got all these people joining it and it's valued at many, many billions of dollars. And I asked the question very simply. I'm like, okay, that's great. They're playing to earn these tokens. Where is the money coming from? because they're not paying for the game and they're doing all these actions within the game to earn tokens. And then you're minting these tokens. Why the hell are these tokens worth anything? And where's the money coming from? And the same holds true for there's all these companies offering like interest rates on decentralized finance. Oh, put your money with us. You'll get a 10% interest rate. How? And I looked, I was like trying to figure out how does this work? What's the economic model? I read this Harvard business review article about it. And it's like, Oh, so we mint more tokens to pay the interest, and then the tokens become more valuable because the more people who have the tokens, the more valuable the token becomes. I'm like, well, I mean, you just said a, this sort of weird magic thing that goes against <laughs> all of economics. These are not the droids you're looking for. It's just a mind trick. And I look at these things, and I'm like, look, these companies are valued at many billions of dollars. Lots of smart people have poured money into them, but I cannot support business models that just do not make sense. I mean, the bottom line is the business models do not make sense unless you have this magical belief that the more people who have a token, the more the token will increase in value, which presumably taken to its logical extreme is a company called WorldCoin, which is proposing to give its token to everyone in the world. And it's raised a lot of money as well. And the wrinkle with WorldCoin is they have this thing where they say, well, you know, in order to get your tokens, you're going to be scanned by one of our orbs. I'm like, well, that doesn't sound scary. 
and the orb is like a retinal scanner and the thesis is well if we have everyone's retinal scan data then it's valuable i'm like uh, a i'm not sure if that's true b that seems really creepy and that you're going to be sued out of existence and c it seems your core argument is if everyone in the world has some of this token it's going to be valuable i'm like yeah well you know if everyone in the world has 10 fingers that doesn't make 10 fingers more valuable well, do you know what? I'm, I'm immediately thinking probably most households in the Western world have at least one copy of Monopoly in the cupboard. So there's a lot of Monopoly money in the world, but it doesn't make that Monopoly money any more valuable. You know, Don, that is such a brilliant, brilliant analogy. I'm going to steal it, but I will credit <laughs> you when I use it. But the other one, the decentralized interest rate thing just sound like a, sounds like a Ponzi scheme. It is. It literally is. Right. The reason is the interest rate, you, you put your money into the token, the interest rate is paid in tokens. So just imagine if you had a bank, ignore Web3, take crypto, blockchain, all this out of it. Imagine if you had a bank and they said, we're issuing our banknotes and these banknotes are worth the same as a dollar and uh, we'll pay you interest in banknotes. Where does interest come from? We print more of them. Oh, so they're the ones you don't like. What What is it that you're looking at at the minute and you think, uh, that sounds like a really great business. The rest of the world hasn't caught up or maybe doesn't know about it yet. So what I look for are businesses that are solving real problems with technology, because that's the bottom line. Technology enables us to do things that people could not do before, uh, that it makes it easier to do things that were previously difficult and allows us to make the world a better place. So I just spoke this morning. I won't use the name of the company or the CEO because... Uh, I haven't got any permission to do that, but I spoke this morning with the CEO in India, which is a country where I think there's just tremendous opportunity and upside. And what they're doing is they're basically doing something that fixes the healthcare system of India. And he said, this, I talked to the CEO, and he's like, well, how much do you know about the healthcare system of India? I'm like, I don't know much. I know about the healthcare system of the United States. He's like, okay, imagine the healthcare system of the United States, but it makes even less sense and it's far worse. I'm like, okay. <laughs> and, which, is, which, is, which is tough. Which is tough because the healthcare system in the United States makes no sense, but the healthcare system in India makes even less sense. Uh, just to give you a sense of it, you have insurance. Insurance has a market penetration of about 4%. There's very little health insurance. And part of the reason is because most of the hospitals do not operate uh, even with pen and paper, like everything is done informally, the insurers won't pay for anything. So you can buy insurance, it's just not useful for anything other than a hospital stay at certain hospitals. And so no wonder people haven't bought it. And they're working on a technology solution to be able to bring insurance and managed care to a mass audience and be able to affect millions of lives. And I don't know if they're gonna succeed or not, but that's the kind of thing where I'm like, okay, you know, is this something where you will be able to have some sort of network effect, some sort of ability to grab the land, develop these long-term relationships? Are you gonna have distribution that's gonna allow you to grow quickly enough? Do I think this is a team that can do it? And those are the kinds of companies that we're looking for. We're looking for companies where it's very clear what the benefit is, how the product makes the lives of the people who are using it better, and companies where they're going to be able to grow really quickly and have a dominant market position. And so a uh, couple of questions about your venture business then. Mm -hmm. So you've got this algorithm. Are you better at stock picking, company picking than other people, do you think? When we look back at the businesses you've invested in, is your track record better than your competitors, do you think? So we're very early in the process. We think we are going to be better than the competitors because historically we looked at companies uh, going all the way back you know, for a decade and tried to score them after the fact. Now, I always tell everyone, take any sort of back data, back testing with a grain of salt. 
because past performance is no guarantee of future results. And also, when we're doing a scoring algorithm on companies where we know what the outcome is, it's human nature to let that affect you. But the good news is we've also been scoring companies pretty steadily since 2019, which has given us you know, a couple of years of data. And the data is that the companies that we highlight tend to do incredibly well. The difficult part is not being able to find companies that are going to do incredibly well. It's actually being able to get into the deals. And <laughs> that's why we put our podcast out there, right? We have a podcast where we literally tell people these are the companies that are going to be valuable. And the question would be, well, why would you do that when you're a venture capital firm and don't you want people to invest money in you to give to those companies as opposed to just trying to invest in them directly? I'm like, haha, let them try to invest directly. They're not going to get anywhere because it's so impossible to get into these deals. We've talked about network effects and total addressable market and have they, are they trying to solve a problem? Have they got minimal viable product? What, what else is in your, in your algorithm? And, and is there anything in your algorithm now that wasn't in the book? It's not that it wasn't in the book, but what we have done is we have gone ahead and fiddled with the algorithm in terms of how it works. So the book, we don't really describe anything about the algorithm. We just describe these different things that should be in place, but we don't differentiate between them. We don't provide any weightings or anything like that. And so what we've done with Blitzscaling Ventures is we've gone through a whole process of refining and figuring out how to make it work. And what we've done is we actually uh, grade these companies as a scale of one to 10, but instead of just adding the scores together, we apply an exponential factor to really prioritize high scores. And we apply a weighting factor to really put the emphasis on the winner-take-most-market dynamic and the distribution, which are the two most important things. And so as a result, if you were to just look at companies and just give an equal weight to all those factors, you would arrive at very different results than if you did what we did, because we are specifically looking for companies that are great at having a winner-take-most-market and having great distribution, and that can overcome a lot of other things. And when you started doing this in 2019, who are the, the businesses that you saw then that now sort of three years later are scorching away? Well, there's a, there's a variety of them and I can mention them because, you know, now that they're too big for us to invest in, it's, <laughs> it's too late for us to, to be a part of it. Did you get into any of these? Uh, we started scoring the companies in 2019, but we didn't start investing until 2021. So uh, these early ones are always going to be in the category of the ones that got away, but we still, you know, look fondly on them because you know what, they're, they're very successful. So just thinking about a couple of them, and, and this helps illustrate one of the points, we look at deals all over the world, not just here in the United States. And we're looking, for example, at a couple of really powerful European deals. So one European deal, and just to prove I'm not like somebody who's against Web3 in general, one of the European deals is a company called SoRare, which is in the Web3 space. And what they do is it's essentially fantasy football crossed with NFTs and collectibles and the like. And one of the things I've said about Web3, people are like, oh, NFTs, they're a scam. I'm like, well... Not necessarily. I mean, there's nothing that makes an NFT any more of a scam than printing some stuff on a piece of cardboard and charging people money for it, which is what a baseball card is or a football card, right? You somehow, just because of the ink that you put on the paper, it's worth more money. That's kind of crazy, right? That's just as insane as an NFT and more easily counterfeitable. And so with so rare, what they did wisely is they focused on this fantasy football element and this collectible element of the top 
European football leagues. And they signed agreements with them early on before everyone else realized how valuable this was going to be. And so that gives them built-in demand, which is the most important thing in Web3, right? It's all supply and demand. You can limit the supply. You could say it's programmatically limited supply because it's based on an algorithm. All that's great. If people don't want it, it's still worthless. And they did a great job of getting things that were worth it. Uh, it's a company where we would have loved to invest if, if we'd be able to get it, our fund together in time and get into it. And, you know, it's now been valued at many, many billions of dollars as a leader in its field. Uh, another company in a very different market is a company called Anchor Store. And what Anchor Store does is they're essentially a wholesale marketplace to help merchants find goods that they can then sell in their stores, right? This, the trend is towards people to sell on Shopify, but the question is, where do they get their inventory? And Anchor Store is kind of like a company here in the United States called Fair that's also very successful. It helps merchants find these goods, and it's a marketplace dynamics. So it's strongly winner take most. Same sort of thing. It's a company which we had our eye on, we thought was very interesting. We could not invest in in time. And again, these are companies which have done multiple follow-on rounds at much higher valuations. The story's not done until the company actually exits, of course, but it's pretty remarkable. And what do you what do you think about, you know, like Rocket Internet, people like that, where it's like, okay, so there's a thing in the, you know, that whole winner takes most. Often it's in a market in which they launch to start with. And if people are smart enough, I guess, or copycat enough, they can they can create something valuable and either hold their own. But it, I mean, it, it's interesting because it's not, it was the same was true in storage. You know, if you go back in storage, you know, the number one in Germany wasn't the same as the number one in the US. There was, you know, people get used to buying stuff that there's you know, pre-internet with things, real things. So what do you think about uh, those sort of market dynamics where people are sort of saying, right, I'm going to try and copy somebody quickly before they get here. Right. So I think that that is actually a very smart business model. It's not a business model that makes a lot of friends, but it's a great business model. And those guys have been, the Somver brothers, have been enormously successful over time. And, you know, some of our investing works like that. So, for example, one of the companies we invested in is a company called Fossili in Brazil, which is the Pinduoduo of Brazil. Now, the key is it's a very different market than China. They've had to do things very differently. You can't just copy and paste. And it takes having a great entrepreneur. And that's sort of the area where, you know, I feel like Rocket Internet underperforms a little bit in the sense that their, their entrepreneurs are more hired hands than people who are really deriving the majority of the economic benefit. And so, you know, does that mean they have the absolute best people? Probably not. But it's still good enough if they execute well to be able to get a great economic return. It's one of those things where uh, I tip my cap to them for they've been pursuing this business model for decades. It's very successful. It's made them billionaires. Good for them. But I do think that in a market where you have a mercenary hired hand going up against somebody who actually owns the company, and this is something they chose to pour their life into, then I'm going to bet on the entrepreneur every time. Well, it's, it's interesting because Southwest Airlines was a copycat of Pacific Southwest which is why it's actually in Texas and not in the Southwest United States. And then Pacific Southwest went, changed its business model and disappeared, leaving Southwest Airlines looking like it came up with the idea because they're, they're competitive. They out-executed the same business model. Exactly. And Southwest is a phenomenal example of a company that has been very smart about, you know, just having a model and sticking with it, right? It's it's and they've they can change the model a little bit, but that's why they're the most valuable and most successful US airline. And their model is very simple. We operate one kind of plane. 
We don't have assigned seating. We tend to operate out of smaller airports. And they have this entire cost structure which allows them to compete. By the way, Southwest is not necessarily cheaper than the other airlines, right? Sometimes they are, but they don't necessarily make their money because they're cheaper than the other airlines. They don't attract the customers because they're cheaper. They attract the customers because they're more convenient and because the, if the features of Southwest, like, for example, the fact that you don't, every fare is refundable, right? You, or at least you know, transferable into credits, which are super easy to use. Uh, I prefer to fly Southwest. I know some friends of mine who are perhaps wealthier than me and therefore fly first class everywhere of their own private jets. Like, oh, that's a cattle car. I'm like, you know what? If I'm going on a plane for an hour and a half, I don't freaking care whether I'm on a private jet or on Southwest. Yeah, easy. Right, Chris, what is it that you know now that you wish you'd known earlier? So something that I tell everyone is you have to understand that everyone in the world is just kind of faking it. When I was young, I assumed that if people were in a position of power and they'd accomplished great things, that they had it all dialed in, they knew what was happening, they knew what was up, and they had it all figured out. And the answer is not at all. Right, We're all sort of struggling through this. And so that doesn't mean ignore the wealthy and successful and accomplished, because guess what? They're wealthy, successful, and accomplished, and you should be able to learn a lot from them. But in a situation, what I would call an emperor's new clothes situation, don't be afraid to be the child that says, hey, that emperor is naked. Right, The fact that a whole bunch of brilliant people invested in a company or behind something doesn't mean it's going to work. And I've seen that play out over and over and over again. I mean, just think about the segue going back 20 years. The segue was like, oh, my God, this press about this thing is going to change the world. And Steve Jobs is an investor and Kleiner Perkins is an investor. All the smartest people in the world think it's great. Or Google Glass. Oh, my God, we're all going to be wearing glass someday. I'm like, look, you know, uh, you just look at the segue and like, that's cool, but it's a very limited niche market. Or you look at Google Glass and say, only people who have already decided they never want to have sex again are going to wear it. I mean, it's just, <laughs> it's just one of these things where it's like, okay, I don't care how smart you are. I'm willing to think for myself. That's brilliant. And other than the Alliance and Blitzscaling. Available at fine bookstores everywhere. <laughs> Indeed. What else should uh, what else should people be picking up and and reading? So I'm going to give you some recommendations for books of various kinds, business books, newer books, older books. And I'll just give a whole bunch because, you know, why not? We're giving it away. It's like a fire sale here. <laughs> so one of the new books that has just come out, my friend Dan Pink has a book out that talks about the power of regret. And this is really interesting because we have this whole mindset of no regrets, never have any regrets. And Daniel has gone out and done all this work to actually say, you know what? There's actually a reason why regret exists. And we should not be people who are like, oh, no, screw regret. We'll never have any regrets. You know what? Regret exists for a reason. And I compared his book to the movie Inside Out, if you remember that one, which is where Joy has to learn that, you know, there's a role for sadness as well. And in amongst everyone saying, I'm crushing it, I'm killing it, no regrets, it's good to think back about the things you regret. Because if you try to hide that, if you try to squash that emotion, it's actually not very good for you. Uh, you mentioned my friend Whitney Johnson. She has a new book out called Smart Growth, talking about the S-curves of growth. I, did, I had her as a guest on my podcast, the Chris Yeh Podcast, available everywhere you can download fine podcasts. And 
you know, again, I'm just a big fan of Whitney's work. And I think the concept of the S-curve of growth is so valuable. And it really dovetails nicely with my book, The Alliance. Because if you think about it, the whole thing about a tour of duty is you want it to last long enough to really be able to climb up that S-curve. But when you get to the top of the S-curve, it's time to start looking for that new tour of duty. And it really helps explain why it is that companies and and jobs and careers are structured the way they are. Uh, a couple of other ones, oldies but goodies. One of the books that was most influential in my career and life is probably the classic How to Win Friends and Influence People. That is by Dale Carnegie. It's an old book that has been around. It's probably sold a billion copies, but it's still useful. And most people think, oh, that's that book about how to be fake. I'm like, no, the book is about how valuable it is to show a sincere interest in others. And that's the bottom line, and that is something I've tried to live by ever since then. Another book that I want to highly recommend, this is a, a deep cut, but there's a book called Why We Do What We Do by the psychologist Edward Detchy that really helped me puzzle out what I think is the meaning of life. And I'll give you the 60-second summary because, you know, we could do the meaning of life in 60 seconds, right? <laughs> the 60-second summary is that most of us focus on external motivations. We want to be rich, famous, good looking. Turns out those things don't make us happy. And even if we achieve them, they don't make us happy. And what really matters are intrinsic motivations. And the most important ones of those are having great relationships with people you care about, having a sense that you're growing, and having a sense that you're giving back and, and helping something bigger than yourself. And that it really is, bottom line, the meaning of life. And if you can do those things, then you're going to be very happy. Finally, I did want to recommend some fiction books. So I'm going to recommend an author I don't know and an author I do know. So the author I don't know is a great author named Lois McMaster-Bujold, who writes speculative science fiction and fantasy. And I think she does a fantastic job. Many of the things that are written in her books are actually things that I then bring out and, and share with others. Uh, for example, one of the most important principles that she uses in one of her books is that reputation is what others think about you and honor is what you think of yourself. And there's only one of those two that actually matters. That's a very important point. I've shared it with many people over the years. Finally, I want to recommend a book by one of my friends, Naomi Novik, who is a novelist, best known perhaps originally for her Black Powder uh, Napoleonic Dragon Wars series that eventually I hope will make it to the screen. Naomi and I worked together at D.E. Shaw and Company way back when. It was both of our first job after college. And we were seated in the cubicles next to each other. Back then, she was not a famous author. She was just like me, a, 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 you know, entry-level hire. And she actually was, at the time, her literary output was Transformers fan fiction. She wrote about the robots and, and different adventures they had. And we had a fun discussion one time. I'm like, have you noticed the homoerotic overtones of the relationship between Galvatron and Cyclonus? And all sorts of things <laughs> like that. And then, you know, but she took her writing very seriously and is now a multi-time best-selling novelist. And she has some phenomenal books. One of them is called Uprooted. It was actually named one of the best 100 fantasy and science fiction books of all time by Amazon. It's an incredible retelling of fairy tales. And her more recent book that I just loved and adore is a book called A Deadly Education, which is people have described as Harry Potter meets the Hunger Games. What if, uh, what if Hogwarts was a place where people were being killed all the time and everyone just had to band together to survive? So uh, that's another great book. Uh, I haven't read the sequel yet. I'm sure it's, it's awesome. And I cannot recommend it enough. Chris, that's fantastic. Thank you very much indeed.
My pleasure. And it's just been so wonderful to be here with you today, Dom, and have a great conversation. Like I said, I'm stealing your Monopoly money analogy. <laughs> That's brilliant. Chris, thanks for coming on. Speak to you soon. Likewise. I'd be happy to come back anytime. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.